come to Western? Well, I came to Western because I, I wanted to kind of be on my own and um, have this kind of university experience that I had read in McLean's. McLean said that Western was this party school. And as a very shy, sheltered, only child coming from Toronto, it just felt like I needed a different experience. Um, when you're in high school, a lot of times you, you are given an identity that may not reflect you. And I felt like I couldn't I couldn't get rid of that identity until I had moved far away. And Western had really great courses. Um, so it wasn't just all about the partying. They had like a, a course I was excited about. Um, and I actually threw the lookbook away. I went to the university and college fair and I threw it out. I'm like, I don't know where London is. I've never heard of it. I don't, I'm not moving away from home for two, for two hours away. Yeah. And I think about a week before the applications were due, I wasn't interested in any programs except for Western. So I, I took it out of the trash and uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go. So I took my best friend. I convinced her and we convinced her parents to uh, let her go to Western. And then we came together in 2010. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And the fact that you got to like, just do that and like, explore that and you threw up the luck book and you made that decision for yourself. That's very, like, like, personal, I feel because mostly times, like the lookbook is mostly just like the perfect copy version of Western or any other school. Um, and it just displays like whatever trying to sell you on stuff. But you mentioned in your book too how um, your parents were very forward in you making your own life and making you very independent. Um, how is it that, like, well, how did your parents or the way that they encouraged you to move out and live your own life impact you coming to university or your experience at Western? Well, I think I was fortunate to to have um, family that um, they were really open to my growth. They, they never saw me as a child. I was it, I was very much from the camp of there are no gender expectations here. There are no roles on you. You do what you want to do, and you're an adult. One day you will be an adult, so going away to university, if that's what you choose, it's just another stepping stone towards adulthood. So it really even wasn't a question. I think I said, I want, I'm thinking about moving away, and there was no hesitation. And so from a very young age, I, um, I was always um, pushed towards becoming an independent person, uh, making my own money, getting an education, being who I need to be for myself so that I could succeed in this world. So choosing to go away, I was very fortunate in the sense that um, I have a grandfather who was a really, really big help financially and he wanted me to go away. Um, I was able to do that and um, yeah, it paid off. And the whole time I was there, they were very supportive as I became an adult, even as I came home on the weekends after drinking too much, no one said anything. <laughs> it was just a part of life, right? Like it's a part yeah. of growing up. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I guess like, how was that different from I guess like your uh, friends who are and their parents and their relationship, like how has your relationship with your parents impacted your your experience at Western and how like your like friends differed from that? My friends were different. I think um, especially the friend uh, in the book Taz yeah, that I go yeah. to university with, she had a very different, so we, we were similar in the sense that we both come from South Asian backgrounds. <laughs> But um, in her family, she was nobody went away for university, and it wasn't something you did. Her mom wanted her to be to get married, so they wanted to put her into an arranged marriage. They wanted her to stay at home. So to go away for university was almost like, um, in a way, kind of her parents saw it as like, well, what are you going to get up to if you go there? Yeah. So um, for her, I think 
Yes. For her, for her, there was freedom, but the freedom was limited. It was it was limited to the four years we were there. And after that, she knew she had to go home. For me, I knew that that was just a stepping stone. And a lot of my friends, actually, or even people I went to high school with, quite a few of them ended up staying at home. They didn't go away to university. And I think going away to university is also a luxury, which we don't talk about. A lot of people can't afford to go away from university. And um, so I had that chance. And I did actually, uh, there were people from my university, from sorry, from my, um, my high school, who were on campus, but um, it's, a, it's a whole new environment, right? When you see each other in that environment. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was very different nice. I, than some other students I knew. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I completely get seeing other people like in university and high school and just the different dynamics and you're trying to get away but not trying to get away so then you don't really know where to stand on that but I guess like getting into like the book itself like how was and you talk about this in the book a lot but like how was the culture shock coming to western because I feel like oftentimes we don't talk about how like you can get culture shock moving into like other areas as well so culture shock yeah. we talk about it as in like culture shock of the other <laughs> I was culture shocked by the amount of white people there were yeah and I I think because I came from Toronto it wasn't what I expected so before I came to Western you know I would talk to people and get excited you know you're 18 you're like I'm going to Western I'm going away and people would say well like there's no black people there are no black people at Western there are no black people in London and at that point in 2010, we don't have the information that we do today. I didn't really know anything. I didn't really ask. I didn't know anything about the city or anything like that. And so coming in, I think even like the first week of Frosh Week, and you're meeting people and you're interacting and you think it's all going well, and then someone's like, hey, you're the only black girl on our floor. Or I love black girls. Your black girls are so funny. And you're like, hmm, that's weird. Like, what do I do with that? And it's that was kind of the shock. It was, it was the shock of not seeing people who looked like me, but also gravitating to the very few who did. But also the shock of hearing these comments or what I like to call them disclaimer. I call them disclaimers sometimes in the book. Like I've never seen a black girl or, you know, um, I've never hung out with a black person before. Um, so dealing with that and then it, it getting quite malicious as time went on. And in the book, I talk about this from it going from those things like your English is so good to being at Jack's and being confronted with three white students in blackface or being told to go back to my country. So those were massive culture shocks, not just for me, but when I came back to Toronto and told my family and friends about it, they were shocked. They didn't even believe me. They, Their answer to everything was like, well, racism doesn't really exist. It's 2010, which is very ironic because we're having this conversation today. Yeah. But um, it was a shock for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And how does, like, I guess then you talk about it coming back home after university, but throughout the years of university, yeah, did you experience different types of culture shock or was it just like it just changed when you moved out from residence and then moved to, um, I guess, different parts of London? Well, it changed from first year. So in first year, I think what you're trying to do, especially if you're living on residence and I was in, in uh, med mm-hmm. you um, you're first just surrendering to the environment. You're like, oh my gosh, I have to share a shower with you know seven other people or twelve other people. This is this is life now, right? Like you take your little shower caddy and that's life, and you meet with people and you just surrender. So when you hear comments like that, you surrender to those as well. You think, yeah, people are ignorant because they're kind of stupid or they're kind of being drunk, and you let it go. But when I moved off campus in second year because I wanted to experience the city, I had never really been someone who I never went to like this like the the uni bars. I never went to like Barney's or Seats. Um, I wanted to experience the city. But by doing that, it opened me up also to locals. And then at nighttime, when I'm the only black woman in a bar, one of very few, and there's alcohol, and there's so many other white people, who not even just white, other people of color as well, um, 
people get really ignorant. And so the, the racism, even the sexism, or what, I, what you call misogynoir, noir, which is racism and sexism towards black women, um, was always so much worse. And then it always had the chance to get quite violent. So I would be, I describe this in the book, but um, being pushed, being shoved, being called like um, horrible names, like racial names, sexually racist pickup lines. At one point I almost get run over while I'm trying to defend my friend um, by car. So it got to the point where I'm like, okay, this isn't even funny anymore. You can't even laugh or brush it off. Like you, can, you can't surrender to this because this is your reality now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like, as you mentioned, like you talk about all those events in the book. So like when you wrote the book or even like before you wrote the book, um, did you give your parents a heads up or your family of like what you experienced or did you just like let them read it and was like, I'll talk to them after and see what they say. <laughs> And what was their like reaction reading it or they were really uh really really supportive and uh, i i feel back to say i'm surprised i think you just don't know right yeah. you're so afraid yeah. um they were really surprised i think they were very emotional about it because it was a lot of things they didn't know about and what they would off what they had said was you know i wish we had known or we could have done something and my response to that is that there's absolutely nothing that can be done when you're growing up when you go away from university you are an adult and you make decisions and sometimes terrible things happen but your parents aren't there to protect you and they can't a lot of those times right um you can't protect me from walking on campus and a white student pushing past me or pushing into me while when i don't step off the sidewalk you can't protect me from someone calling me the n-word and that's just what it was so i think it not only they were they, they thought it was brave but i also think they finally started to understand that yes um even though you're 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 south asian and you're black you are treated with anti-black racism and that was the experience for four years yeah yeah for sure and i i i love how you especially in the book or even like when you like you explain those dynamics through your family and even just like coming to western or even like when you lived at home and come back to to do your masters um i just love how you explain those dynamics so how much did you want to include in terms of like was it always your initial intent to include those family dynamics in the book or did you want it to make this predominantly a book about race in western specifically or in how yeah, the- the family dynamics actually it's really interesting i that was my editor's um 
my editor's suggestion. And I kind of fought her on it. Because I'm like, do people really care about my family? And she was like, yes, they do. Because you have an awesome family. But also, people love stories about families because it reminds people of their own families. So I had been, I the way that I think, I think in boxes. So if I'm going to write a memoir, it's going to be only four years. And what ended up happening was I combined this memoir with another memoir I was working on. So that it has, you know, my childhood, has my teen, my teen years, and my time after Western. And I think that I needed all of those things to make it even like to make it this memoir um and it really paid off because now when I talk about the book everyone's like oh my gosh I love your grandpa he like you know he reminds me of my grandmother he reminds me of my grandparents or you know your mom is so awesome she reminds me of my mom so I think that it added a layer of um a really important layer of family and love and 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 allyship and family to the book I, I think that it brightened the book so that it wasn't so traumatic it wasn't just here's what happened but here's also my support system and here's me as a person yeah, no, I completely agree. As a reader of the book, I loved reading about not just like like how your family has also changed dynamics over the years and like through you coming through university and coming back. I just loved how you even just accepting who you are like through what, what you believe in, what you want to do with your career even um, and how that's impacted how you want to live. And I think that's just really cool. Um, so I guess like, yeah, no, you should definitely, like, you, you, you did like, it was so just interesting to read and like learn. Um, but I guess what advice do you have for students coming to Western or in Western right now who um, experience some of the events that you described in your book as they were pretty traumatic as you said as well? There are, um, this question almost makes me kind of sad because I'm always like, I, I, I don't have much to give because there's yeah. not much in place to do That better. was my next question. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a really tricky yeah. one, but I think, um, I mean, for the students who are thinking of going to Western or they're, you know, they just come in, it's not too late to do your research. Look in, look into the city. I think a lot of times what students do is they choose a school and they're like, ah, I'm going to spend my four years there. Realistically, you're, you're, most of your time is going to be spent outside the gates. So I think doing research on that, had I had known, I had no idea. I, I came to Western, well, I came to London in 2010. Mm-hmm. In 2009, hate crimes had gone skyrocketing in London. I had no idea. And I had no idea how that was going to affect me until I lived just a block away from white pride marches, right? And I didn't know those things. Today, you can check social media. You can read articles. Western has a lot to be accountable for. There are Instagram pages, Black at Western, Black at U of T. There is, this is everywhere. And I'm not saying that that should scare you because um, the one thing I wanted to be sure when I wrote this book was saying it's not a Western problem. This is a problem across every campus. So making an informed decision. I think um, also joining groups, having joining groups. So whether you're into theater or organizing or poetry or playing instruments, joining groups is a great way to keep, your, keep yourself busy, make friends. Make friends with people who look like you, people who are allies, who have your back. And I think when it comes to the racist element of things, um, one thing that I think is understated is actually friendship. I think having people to laugh with, having people who understand, especially when there's no structure in place, is, is resilience and it's resistance. And um, a lot of what we experience on campus are considered hate incidents. So they're not hate crimes because they don't go against the law. Our hate crime laws are very outdated. What we're seeing on campus is a large amount of hate incidents. So um, telling people, you know, go back to where you came from or any kind of offensive terms that don't violate the law. And what what would be nice would would be to have resources where students can go 
speak to someone outside of the wait list of like a, of a general therapist, having access to that stuff, um, talking to each other, t- sharing those experiences, right? So that the school can't stay silent. Um, t- if you have um, professors or TAs who are people of color as well, bonding with them and at least sharing those experiences so that that can happen. And not to put the pressure on students because I think they do enough, but organizing student activism at this, this generation, the reason that we have what we have and we're having these conversations is not because of faculty or staff, it's because of students. Yeah, that was perfectly put. No, for sure, yeah. I think it's it's super important just to have those community connections, those that connections just with people, um, to have those conversations, not just like with people in the community, but people outside with allies, like everyone just ha- continuing, like, and not just stopping it in terms of like a social like on Instagram or just on Facebook or something but making those conversations in person as well um so like you kind of touched on this already but like what resources do you wish were existed at Western when you were there or even now yeah see I like this question because now I get dreams yeah (laughs) (laughs) um well I think like I was saying so I have a bone to pick with the equity and inclusion office because I I think I think a lot of students, they, I, I mean, I spoke about my experience on Twitter and the equity and inclusion office was like, we reached out to eternity recently, but I, I had, the last time I was a student was eight years ago. So they actually didn't know what they were talking about. So I think they were trying to save face there, but I also think that it's not enough to be defensive in that case because, um, a lot of students in your first year, even your second year, you don't even know where your classes are. You don't know where your buildings are. So how can you find this place with this long name called the equity and inclusion diversity office Um, and a lot of what they deal with um, sometimes comes down to human rights complaints so what I was saying about the hate incidents they don't actually um, go against the law so you have nowhere to go so what I would like to see is from the beginning from frosh week um, actual training anti-black racism training anti-racism training for everyone actual resources even hiring student staff or PhD students who are social work PhDs to create a place where students of color can go and actually talk to somebody outside of the general um, wait list first for mental health services and support because that wait list could be two years you can't mm-hmm. graduate by then i think we need that um i think we need more student-led forums if, if the university wants to conduct um discussions and workshops and um move forward from where it's at in terms of race, the students actually have to be involved, but they also should be compensated for their time in, in numerous ways. Um, and definitely, I think that we need more support around intimate partner violence. So coming to Western from, from Frosh Week, I know that you know everywhere you look, there are campaigns for sexual assault, even though the school has a reputation like many other schools of pro-rape chance, um, those are there, but when I was in an abusive relationship, I had no idea where those services were for intimate partner violence. And um, it's quite common, even in the US, that these services don't exist, despite intimate partner violence most affecting university-age women and being just as prevalent of a crime as sexual assault on campus. So it would have been nice to have some of that and have it early on. And um, one thing I think the school could be doing in all schools is one of the reasons I came to Western was because they had a zero tolerance policy. And I remember being grade 12 and being like, I'm black, what's going to happen to me? And sitting in an open house and somebody saying, we have a zero tolerance policy for racism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism. And I thought, okay, I'm safe. But that's not really enforced. And so I think there needs to be some accountability around these processes as well. But um, there is a lot of work to do, not just at Western, but across all campuses. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, for sure. And um, especially in your book, you when you describe such events or even just like um, in terms of events with racism or interpartner violence, you always back them up with like statistics, not just of Western, but like of Canada as well. And why was it important for you to do so to add these like factual information in personal stories as well? Well, two things. One, I'm a journalist and I, I couldn't put down the journalist hat. And um, I think what I've learned in being a journalist now, it's been about, uh, I think, seven years. What I've learned is that, unfortunately, when you are from a marginalized group, nobody believes your story unless there's data. And um, if there's no data, you're just whining. If you don't like what it is, you go back to where you came from. You're entitled, you're selfish, you're lazy, especially if you're a black woman. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to make this case so that nobody can say that I made this up because a lot of times early on when I started writing about race, people would say, oh, she made it up. And even if I had facts. And so I keep everything fact heavy because it makes it harder to turn away from. And unfortunately, we need the facts for people to believe us, which is really sad still in this age, this day and age. But um, I I think it was a, a, um, a decision made, I think, early on that if I'm going to talk about myself, my book is, this story is not just my story. This story belongs to everyone I know who has gone, who has been in this situation and the stories are very similar. So not only do I have so many people behind me, but this research also actually exists and here's how the, the practical stuff ties into the theory. And you can't look away from that because those are facts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what advice would you give to yourself if you could like come back when you were first entering Western or even like when you were writing this book at CERT? Hmm. Well, um, well, the advice I would have given myself before I came to Western is I think I would have, I would have taken time to know who I was. And I don't think that's celebrated enough. I think like, you know, in, in high school, you learn about, well, maybe if you're lucky, financial literacy and you do like civics and careers, but you don't learn about making decisions and you don't learn about self-love and self-importance. And so when you go to a school like Western or really any school where you're going away or there's, you know, you're going to party, you think that your milestones are, all the milestones that you want to achieve are superficial. It's drinking, it's partying, it's having your stomach popped. That was a thing. I don't know if that's still a thing, but having your stomach popped was a rite of passage. Those are not good milestones to have, right? The milestone should be, you know what? I'm kind of trashed. I'm not going to have another drink, even if people egg me on. Mm -hmm. um, I woke up and, you know, I, I don't feel great today. My mental health is not well, but you know what? I got some sun or I stayed in bed and that's okay. And so I think had I known it was okay to be who I wanted to be and I didn't have to fall into these things, I would have had an easier time. Um, and then in the sense of writing the book, I think what I hadn't realized about writing this book is going back to memories is an incredibly painful process. Like memory extraction is really difficult. And it's something I learned in, you know, in my English classes in women's studies about memory um, and the power of memory, but it was very hard to go back to these things. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning of writing this book, I had always seen this book as a humorous book and I pitched it as a, as a comedy. And my editor was like, this is actually very dark. Like, do you, do you realize how dark this is and the stuff that you've gone through? And I was like, you know what? No, because when you're in that environment, you don't have time to think about it being depressing. You don't have time to, to cry. Um, and so I think I, if I'd given myself a little bit more credit and been like, you know what? You are going through something tough and that's okay. Surround yourself with people you love. Um, I would have been able to be less in denial because the denial, I had to deal with that denial a decade later. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting that you say that like the milestones were getting your stomach pumped. Because I remember when I came to Western, people would like 
get their stomach pumped on weekends. Like that would be the goal. And then they would start again on Friday or the next day. And that would be like another goal. And it would just be like a normal occurrence. And I was like, I was just so strange by that fact. Cause I was like, oh, this is just a normal thing that people go to the hospital to do, but also people could potentially die from. So I don't know, I, I guess like, do you think like the idea of even just the way that the culture of alcohol in Western, um, cause like the way that you described it is like almost similar to the way it still is. So do you think that the, the culture of alcohol in Western is still like problematic in a sense in that way? Yeah, see yeah. I don't want to take away anyone's fun. Yeah, like, yeah, I, no. I'm all about fun. Yeah. You know, Everyone fun go out, go crazy. But um, I think the problem is like Western is trying to clean up its reputation around alcohol. It's not the only one. Binge drinking is, is, a, is a campus wide, Canada university-wide problem, mm-hmm. but I think Western's reputation hasn't changed much, but it's also, to me, it's always been a work, you work hard, you play hard, but not everyone knows when to stop, and the problem becomes when students start dying of alcohol poisoning, or falling out, this has happened to other universities, falling out of the window and dying by accident, mm-hmm. that's happened a couple of times, um, a young woman was hit by a drunk driver um, a couple of years ago on campus and outside the gates. And she was in her first year. She's from my hometown. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, I don't know, if, like like racism, like sexism, binge drinking is one of those things where every school knows it's a serious problem, but there's no unified formal policy to deal with it and, and create that action. Because realistically, you can't stop 18-year-olds from drinking in, yeah. in their dorms. Yeah. But you can teach them what happens if you drink too much. Mm-hmm. Or you can teach them that it's okay to not have that third or, or 13th drink. You can do that. So I think that needs to be in place because it's, if, it, if, if it is, like you said, it's not really changing, then that action and that like doing that piece of the, yeah. the prevention education is not happening yet. Yeah, yeah. And how do you think that like even just plays into like into partner violence or even just like um, drinking within like it within... Or, yeah, just stop there. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I think um, infant partner violence is harder because, um, I mean, it still plays a role because yeah, alcohol plays, can play a huge role in violence, but sexual assault, definitely. And um, especially during Frosh Week. So what is kind of horrific about Frosh Week at Western and a lot of other schools is that um, during Frosh Week, they call it the red zone for, for young women. So you're between the, like, the first... The first, the first week to I think like the sixth or eighth week, mm-hmm. you're more likely to be sexually assaulted um, on campus. A lot of that has to do with alcohol. Those first couple of weeks, you're drinking, you're partying, so you're more likely to be sexually assaulted. Um, if you join a sorority, you're three times more likely to be assaulted, and if you join a frat, you're three times more likely to assault, some, sexually assault somebody. So I think alcohol plays a massive role in that. And uh, while I was researching the book, it didn't make it into the book, but I had done some research on binge drinking, and a lot of students had said that um, they had alcohol involved in their sexual interactions, and almost all of them regretted it after the morning after. <laughs> so it plays a big role also in in consent, and I think that. Even myself, as somebody who considers themselves quite educated, I taught um, teenagers about dating violence and sexual assault. You don't even realize that you cannot give consent when you're drunk. So you're having all these drunken hookups happening in first year in your dorm, and you think because you're both drunk, it's fine, but you can't consent when you're drunk. And so who's telling students that? So um, it definitely plays a massive role in, sexual, in, in all kinds of assault and consent conversations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, I, I like, I remember in my first year, or just in like time in Western, we would usually get like pins or like, like just like stickers that would tell us like about this information. But do you think like, like those pins and stickers aren't like, 
or what more should be done instead in addition to that um mm-hmm. well pins and stickers are i think i don't know because i could get yeah. a pin or i, I got a pin i got yeah. a sticker yeah, it didn't do anything to me right yeah. um or you put the pin on and there's some guy who's like oh so like you know look at your fancy pin yeah. and then that's it yeah but exactly. i think that having I'm all for like these kinds of campaigns because mm. I think they do they do work, but it also kind of creates this other element of like, oh, I'm cool if I wear this pin, or I'm you know I'm progressive if okay. I wear this pin, and maybe you're not progressive. Yeah. Um, in the book, I talk a lot about like like faux feminists, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that kind That's of concept. True. So I think um, as part of Frosh Week, like having some very serious, even if it dulls the the mood, the moment, having some very serious conversations from that first week, making everyone take mandatory training mm-hmm. should be part of coming to into school, and that should include for the softs because the softs do a lot of sexual, they sexually assault young women. Mm-hmm. They're older, they come in, right? Like, there's, I talk about that in the book. So I think. Um, starting early and and actually making it a thing is important and i was actually at western in uh during the first week of september and i went to go yeah. talk to i saw that about... it was great, it was a great <laughs> thank <movie>. you um, <laughs> yeah i was talking about that and uh, somebody told me later like they had been trying and trying for years to get somebody to come and talk about racism and sex- sexism as a soft, and they couldn't do it. So we're not even there yet. Yeah. So to even so, it's great to hand out pins and stuff. But are you going to put in the money and the time and the resources to actually have people come in and talk about this? And having students, like former students, is a genius idea. But that those were the students who thought of it, right? Like yeah. they were able to think of that yeah. and put it together. Yeah, for sure. And it should definitely be on the administration to at least take that step and. Um, yes. invest that time and the money to do so but um, also in the book you talk about your own personal personal experiences with assault and interpartnered violence so how was it opening up like that like you mentioned this already a little bit but how was it opening up about those experiences um, in written form yeah well um, I actually wrote about it when I was um, in third or fourth year so I was part of V-Day I can't remember what my role was I don't, I don't know if it was like a president I can't remember at this point I'll just but, say the um, president I used to something part, yeah. of, part of V-Day Basically. and I would put on shows I put on Purple Sex and um, the vagina monologues and all of that and I won I, I had written about that experience for one of the shows I think it was for Purple Sex mm-hmm. and it was kind of my first foray into writing about it for me writing is the way I process emotions I'm not a great communicator verbally about feelings but I can write them so I had done many drafts of that piece sort of about my experience while I was a student. Um, but I think what was hard for me, well, there are two things. What was hard about that was that you never want to be blamed. So one of the biggest issues or one of the things I was most scared about was being blamed for something or being blamed for not telling the whole story. And I didn't want it to sound like it was like a me versus him or, you know, good versus bad. I had my faults. We all do. Uh, But what I thought, I thought was harder to write about was sexual assault because um, it just, I didn't want to, I just didn't feel even after all this time I was ready to do it. And then I was thinking to myself, well, how can I write a book about campus life and not include this? And I think what was so powerful to me was remembering that scene in the book where we're, we're going on to perform for vagina, the vagina monologues and somebody in the group asks, we're all backstage and she asks who here has been sexually assaulted and there were so many women in the room and except for like one woman, they all put their hands up. So it's like, well, this is a very common experience. So me sharing this um, 
it's less about blame at this point. It's a, this is this happened. Everyone you know or someone that they know has been sexually assaulted. It's a massive problem. So writing about it felt more like I had to write about it um, because it, it worked. It, it was important to the book. But it was important to my experience and understanding also why I did the things that I did, why I drank so much, why I was the way I was. is because I had all that, dealt with all of these things. And I want to show the impact of that. When you are sexually assaulted or you're a victim of any kind of violence, it alters everything for you. Your life changes in that moment. Who you are, your trust is broken, you, you, you feel betrayed. So it felt important to talk about that experience um, within the book. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely felt that when reading the book, um, your, like the, the, just the way that it impacted the rest of your journey at Western or even like beyond and how, what, like, even just in terms of like how your relationship to drinking changed or how your relationship to your friends or like just even your career rise and what your focus became on like um, impacting women and just guiding yourself. Um, so I guess like even just what challenges do you, did you were like writing the book? Um, how did you like, did, what challenges you encounter trying to like censor yourself and like trying to increase how much like what, I guess like the relationship you had with the editor, even just like process of editing or writing the book, how much do you want to include and not to include in terms of having that there? Yeah, that was a really tricky conversation that I had right up until like the day of the deadline. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, I think when I was writing my book, other books, like other memoirs by black writers were coming out, not necessarily in Canada, but we had like Roxanne Gay or yeah. Tana Easy Coates. Um, but I didn't want... When I, when I read my draft, I felt disgust. And it was because I, I felt like I was basically just telling a story. It felt like I was like, a, it was a TMZ expose mm -hmm. of my life. And it took a long time to get to the point where I could figure out what I needed to say with in less words and what could go and, and where I could respect myself. I didn't want to write a book where I would walk into like a cookout or a family party and be embarrassed. I didn't want to write a book where I would hurt the people that I loved. I wanted to write a book that felt respectful, but was also true to myself. Um, and that took a lot of, I took a lot of reading. Um, one book that helped me do that was Alicia Elliott's A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. I think she did it beautifully. And I just thought, you know what, for us, for people of color, for women, we know we know how to communicate everything from a look, from a gesture, from a head nod, from a, mm -hmm, we know those things. So I, my book is for those people. So I know that I can write the bare minimum and they're going to get it. And I think what the, the struggle became was for, you know, for editors, for copy editors, it was like, can you explain this more? And then the push of, no, I don't have to explain it because yeah. I know that for, for my people, they'll get it. Yeah. So it became this place where I had to start standing up for myself, even, um, the chapter about my first boyfriend where I was like I'm not describing any more than this I had described it in great detail I felt like I disrespected myself I felt like it was going to haunt me and there was kind of this conversation of like well can you describe what he did to you and I was like no that's not the point of the chapter right like that is not the point at all and I'm not going to become trauma porn in that way um for for the sake of, of doing it so it took a long time and actually when my deadline had approached I think I had about four days left mm -hmm. I rewrote the entire book oh wow <laughs> ambitious <Yes. laughs> yeah I rewrote it I rewrite it because I was like I'm not happy and I don't want to put out something that I'm not yeah, happy with makes sense. Um, but I was able to rewrite it in a way that I was proud of and I wanted to be proud of it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess like even like I know a lot of people who are want to publish books or are trying to get into the publishing field and they're worried about losing their like voice through it, like being a person of color, being trans or whatever they are. And how did you or what advice do you have for someone who's afraid of losing their voice of call a voice, their personal voice in their stories? I think you have to, when you tell a story, you need to be in the right headspace to tell the story. First of all, if something happened and when you think about it, it brings a lot of emotion, very likely it's not time to tell that story. So that's the first thing is being comfortable in that story. And also writing is very subjective and it's very intimate. So you need to also be okay with people saying, you know what, that didn't work and not taking it personally. Um, and so when it comes to like this worry of like, what if they, what, what if they twist my story? What if they silence me in different ways? You have to be able to stand up for yourself. Um, you know your story best. Everyone around you, they can help you shape it. They can help you publish it, but only you know what happened. And what I think is so cool and interesting about when you're a writer of color, um, even a queer writer and part of the LGBTQ2S community is, like I said, we communicate things so differently and it, it translates in our writing. So something that seems so subtle or it's written subtly to, to us, we know what the, what, the, what the meaning is. And so you need to write for you. And I think like, you know, when you get to publishing, they'll say, well, you, there's no market for this. Or what if we expanded this that included these people? That can come later. At the beginning, you write for you and you stand by it. And that's how you'll get where you need to be. And when it's time, when you have to kill your darlings because that sentence doesn't work or whatever, you can make, you know, you can negotiate there. But the things that you hold dear, the things that your gut tells you, I don't want to include that or I don't want to go any further or that's not what I meant, then you have to stand by it. Yeah. Say that for yourself. Yeah. And I guess like throughout any of the process of publishing, editing, or even like promoting your book or even just talking about it, um, or the experiences you had, have you ever felt like an imposter or felt like, and how do you have like ever deal with like imposter syndrome or, um, Oh, I feel like an imposter all the time, <laughs> yeah. all the time. I, yeah, I, it's, you know, we all have it, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. And like I, like I want to say too, like my publisher, my editor, my agent, they have been phenomenal. Like sometimes I feel like they believed in me a whole lot more than I believed in myself. A whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Like they saw the end result before I saw the end result. And that I'm grateful for because um, I don't know. A, a lot of us we're not we're not confident in that way, right? Like taking on a project like this, taking on a book, you don't think it's possible all the information if you if you google how to write a book get a book published it's so negative it's like well you're probably not going to your book is going to sit on your on your computer until you know 2085 so um it's it's hard but you need to i think what we need to do more as as people is we need to pat ourselves on the back for the accomplishments every little step of the way and take time to honor them um and just know that we're all doing the best that we can we all feel like imposters all of us Um, and if you don't you probably are egotistical for a lot of the time but it's normal and it's okay and we're all just doing the best that we can um i think just put really un unrealistic expectations on ourselves but some of the ways that i deal with it is um you know, I, I get a lot of messages from people. I go back and read them. And to me, feeling less like an imposter is knowing that my story resonated with somebody. That's all I need. Like, you know, somebody bought my book and said, um, I went through this. Thank you for sharing. That is all I need. So if I feel like a bit of an imposter everywhere else, at least I know that I did some. I did what I wanted. I set out to do. Yeah. So was that your goal when you initially set out to write the book? Like you wanted to just reach out people or educate people? 
Yeah, that was that was basically it. Like yeah. I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to get the story out there. I I'm somebody I don't know how to ex- like describe it to people, but um, when I have a story I want to tell, it feels like it's just waiting. Like I'm I'm bursting with stories. Like I have to tell it. I don't care what the cost is. I need to tell a story, and it felt like that with this book. So it just felt like I have to get this out. Um, I just want it to be out because it resonates. I'm having this conversation so much. And it's not anywhere, and it needs to come out now. And so even as I was looking for a publisher and some feedback I get from other publishers was like, hey, I'm not sure if it's going to sell or, you know, it shouldn't really focus just on four years. I'm like, no, this is the story. Mm-hmm. When we talk about race, right now, when we talk about racism, it, it always ties back to police brutality. It never talks about campus. And this institution, like, universities have been were literally built by slaves. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about any of so um, I just had to stick with it and that was it I just wanted to resonate with people yeah yeah and I loved how well you were talking about your race experience and your experiences with um, interpartner violence you also added so much like humor in the book Um, like I remember one time you mentioned like the London buses were like submarines with like the yellow poles and stuff and I burst out (laughs) laughing that was hilarious I was like oh my gosh it's so funny (laughs) yeah they do look like submarines Um, so how important was it or even like the little section with like the tips and guides um, how important was it for you to add these like comedic reliefs in the book it was really important and the the tips so it's called um, the uh, necessary survival guide for token students so that was actually a chapter that didn't work because the rest of the book was so heavy and my editor was like what if we turn it into these interstitials so humor is important to me because I think like one of the ways that when you're when you are black one of the ways that you survive is humor and laughter and black joy is one of those things that we don't celebrate enough people get shocked for it they get punished for it um they get kicked off trains and and pun and you know like even in Toronto we have Afrofest for example or during carnival weekend when we're about to like have fun and turn up somebody calls the police and then everything gets shut down right or mm-hmm. or the noise is too much so I wanted to just show that like humor is such a big part of navigating this environment or navigating trauma, having friends, laughter is important. And so those chapters are super in your face. Like they're very cheeky, they're very bold, um, but it was supposed to replicate almost like the ways that we have the conversations among our own friends that make us feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sorely lacking um, in a lot of uh, books about, about blackness because a lot of it goes back to black trauma. But I also wanted to show that this is more than just sad, right? This is humorous and even in the parts where I'm talking about dark stuff, I'm still laughing about it, right? Mm -hmm. There's still a joke. Because I think when you deal with this stuff, you have to have a sense of humor or it will eat away at you. And on the other hand, and though I talk about anger being transformative, if you're not at the place where you can transform that anger, it will eat you alive. And so laughter is so important. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like in terms of like other um, remedies for like dealing with issues like this, how would, like, would you say that um, like resources such as like mental health resources or resources just like community groups are like the ones like your top priorities in terms of like what you use um, to like um, well I, I think what I didn't realize when I was a student is I didn't just have to check out resources on campus <laughs> like I didn't realize when I was like going through my experience with my with my um, my first boyfriend and I was dealing with abuse I didn't know that I could go out into the city right like there were there were there were groups there that I could have talked to I could have gotten help I had no idea so I think like having that going outside of campus when campus is not working for you is also important um, I really recommend therapy 
finding a therapist, and I think that especially for like BIPOC people, therapy seen and you know, it's it's historically kind of traditionally seen yeah. as like you don't you don't get help. Like, yeah. what's wrong with you? You deal with it yourself. Yeah. Having a therapist yeah. is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you're 18, 19, and it doesn't have to be someone who's expensive. Um, a lot of therapists or social workers. They, they do therapy on the side, it's affordable. Um, finding someone who looks like you, I think that's the, I, that would have been the best thing I could have done. Having that kind of resource um, would have done wonders for me. Even someone to check in with once a month, that would have been better than doing it alone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I know, I, I know like even my experiences, which like got, even just having discussions of mental health around my parents or even just like as in South Asian family household, that rejection towards mental health is even just there. Uh, did you experience any like rejection towards like, I guess like what, if you experienced like therapy as essential uh, need, like as that experience in your household or even like through your friends? Well, I actually tried to see a psychotherapist, I think, um, when I, or maybe a psychologist actually, sorry, um, when I was in, First year. So after I had that um, the incident in the book with my with my ex boyfriend, mm-hmm. I wanted to see a a, psych- a psychologist, and I was kind of met with silence. And I was like, okay, they don't get it. And I'm like, you know what? At this point, I'm, my mental health is not good. I'm just going. So I actually because at the time I was on my mom's insurance, so I found her. I booked the appointment. I said to my mom, I said, look, I booked an appointment. I'm going. And she was like, okay. She drove me there. She didn't want to talk about it, and uh, that was fine. But I got the help that I needed. So even though we were talking about it, um, I still had to go. Like I knew at that point, it didn't matter what they thought. I just needed to talk to, to speak to someone. And now I see a therapist. I actually started seeing a therapist because when I left Western, I was incredibly angry for many, many years, which I've heard from other people um, who've gone to Western or other schools. And I didn't realize that it was because of my experience. So I, at that point, I was living alone. And I was just saying, like, you know what? I'm going to therapy and just trying to normalize it. And my grandfather was actually like, I think that's a great idea. I think everyone should go to nice. therapy. Um, and it just came with just putting the pressure on to make it normal. Even if they're silent, even if they say nothing, I'm like, I'm going to therapy. Therapy. This is what my therapist said. And leaving it at that. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. But I need to get the help that I need because I'm an adult now. And I have to take care of myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, just switching gears a little bit. So, like, I know, like, in your book, while reading it, I found, a, like, a great big theme was just, like, your changing understanding towards like what love means even through your like relation not just like romantic relationships but even with yourself um and how like what do you expect from yourself so I guess like my question would be like how has your like idea of love changed with yourself or even like with others as we wrote the book yeah I, I love this question because <laughs> it's, it's the hardest one to answer yeah and um, <laughs> pretty big, that so. chapter I dreaded writing that chapter but it felt so necessary because I mm-hmm. think for me the biggest challenge in my life is that is is um, self love or you know putting up boundaries and having needs. And I think when I was younger, I thought, well, you know, if I'm cool, I will get you know guys will find me irresistible. Mm-hmm. If I don't express myself, that's how I'll nab people. And that didn't work. And all it did was make I just disrespected myself. Mm-hmm. And that didn't just end up with, with the partners I was seeing, is with my friendships, too. Um, many times, Taz in the book, she pushes my boundaries. Many times, I don't even have the conversation to say anything because I'm afraid of what will happen if I say something. Um, and then I realized that, well, actually, while I was writing the book, um, I had a feeling, I'm like, oh, these kind of these 
relationships, they all kind of have the same element of me just being disappointed and not expressing myself. Mm-hmm. And then um, while I was writing that chapter, I was actually seeing someone at the time who kind of replicated all of this stuff. And it kind of just, the stars kind of aligned. And I was seeing my therapist and I was like, this person that I'm seeing reminds me so much of my dad and all the ways that I acted with my dad are all the ways I acted with all these people in the book, mm. which was that I did not express needs. I put up no boundaries. People who surrounded myself, people who, who take but don't give. And I was like, oh, shit. This is not good. <laughs> and and it, was, it was like one of the hardest lessons, probably the hardest lesson I've had to learn was that all these years I was attracting the wrong people because I didn't hold myself to a certain you know, um, standard or I didn't have the self-esteem to, to, to say no, to express needs. So, um, in writing it, I felt very empowered. And I think since then I've been working towards getting better at it. And I think I have gotten better at it, but it is incredibly, incredibly hard to put up boundaries, especially when for so long, that's kind of the way that you, that's who you are, Mm -hmm. right? You, you have no Mm -hmm. boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not something that you learn in, families and South Asian families. You don't have boundaries. There's no no boundaries in South Asian families, right? What are those? Um, I don't have doors. It's okay. What are boundaries? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how dare you? And I I had to to recognize that as well, that from a young age, having boundaries, I would offend people. So there were a lot of things I had to kind of work on that I'm still working on. Um, But having that piece, and I actually wrote that chapter also with four days to spare, (laughs) having that part of, of who I was and realizing that I had work to do on myself was the most enlightening and um, I'm willing to do the work towards it and it's um, I'm willing to surround myself with people who also want to do that work and that's the difference now I surround myself with people that um, who want to see me happy and who I want to see happy and not the other people who just take yeah for sure that's like yeah like I feel like it's so hard especially for like a woman who um, often, like, don't give themselves the time, or, like, women in relationships, or even anyone in relationships, who don't give themselves, like, time to set up their needs in a relationship, and, like, be firm in their needs, or even just, like, in all relationships, romantic or personal, in family, um, and I guess, like, what would be your advice for even just, like, realizing that you need to, like, I know it's cheesy, but, like, love yourself first, and then have yourself go out there. Yeah, um, intuition Mm. we are born with intuition like we all have it if we choose to ignore it there is no one on this planet i don't believe it where they were like you know what my gut said this and i didn't do that like they knew (laughs) everyone has that you know that gut feeling about something something's wrong or whatever so i think starting to to prior like build intuition and trust intuition trust your gut is important trusting how you feel around certain people how you feel in a situation what your body tells you in a certain situation is your stomach you know are you sweating is your heart racing those are all signs from your body that something is not right when you're hanging around someone how do you feel do you feel drained do you literally feel like they're taking from you um do you find patterns like are there patterns in the people that you're around? Are you the person who always drives your friends around and always pays for things or always rooting for your friends, but when you need someone to root for you, no one's showing up? And I think being self-aware in that way and trusting your gut and your body and your intuition, those are ways that you learn to love yourself because you've identified what needs to happen first, what needs to get out of the way so that you can love yourself. Um, and I think this, what is really interesting, and I'm still grappling with it, is this idea of like loneliness versus being alone. Mm-hmm. And assuming that if you're not in a relationship or you don't have a ton of friends, you're lonely. Yeah. And I think a lot of people 
want to be with somebody because they're afraid to, to be alone. They're, not, they're afraid of being lonely and they're afraid to even be alone with themselves to do the work. And a lot of people don't want to do the work because to do it is scary. So I think being okay with being alone, taking time for yourself, putting a pause on dating or putting a pause on whatever to, I don't know, do yoga or drink water, do the things that you like to do, that's self-love, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. that is self-love. And um, not being afraid when you start to practice or you start to put up boundaries, not being afraid of getting knocked down. Because when I tried to start doing it, even though I was too late, when I would start saying things, I would get like, oh, you're crazy. Oh, you're nagging me. Oh, you're entitled. Oh, you know, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I am. (laughs) But boundaries aren't a one-time thing. Like you constantly have to put them up. You might be putting them up for life, but you need to keep that boundary up no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, that's all the questions I really have for you, except one, which was like, I heard that you signed a movie or book, a a series adaptation of it. Um, So yeah, I was wondering like, if you could cast anyone to play yourself in the whole wide world, who would you cast? Because Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I actually don't know. I have been looking, I've been watching <laughs> you... this, who would play me? <laughs> I need somebody who's equal parts like soft and gushy and gushy yeah. yeah. and equal parts like wild. Yeah. Okay. So Fair I'm enough. <laughs> nice. It was basically it would be like a younger, probably like a younger Chiraji P. Henson. Oh, that's a good choice. That's a nice choice. Do you have yeah. like um, I guess, like, anyone in the book where you're like, this person, I would be amazing at this person? Well, my mom wants J-Lo to play her, <laughs> and that's going to be a really tough feat, so I highly doubt J-Lo's interested, but, um... Hey, you know what? On... I bet she can, J-Lo can pull off your mom. Like, I think it'll be right? wonderful, so... I mean, they call look the yeah. same, they're the same age, Basically, like, yeah. she, she looks youthful, like, yeah. I'll put a pitch in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, awesome. And, like, when you, I guess, first envisioned your book writing it, do you ever imagine it's going to be um, a series or something, like, on, um, like, a visual medium? Um, I did, actually. I, I thought about it. I think a lot of the book, the way that I wrote it, is, um, it is, it's kind of, it has structure, and right? it has a dramatic structure to it. And I, I think I've invested, I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize about me is that, like, uh, when I think about something, I think about the whole thing. So even from 10 years ago, I'm thinking about it being a TV show. I'm thinking about what are the opportunities that come out of this? How can I make this bigger? How can I tell the whole story and tell it in different platforms? And that's just who I am. So, um, like, you know, a lot of people were like, are you shocked that, like, you just picked up as a book? I'm shocked it happened so quickly, and I'm, I'm happy it's happening. But I also had a feeling, because I had done the work, I had done the research into that. I was already writing a pilot before I even had you know, sign an agreement. Um, but it's it is so exciting to be in this moment now. Like now I'm now I'm having imposter syndrome. And then I'm like, oh, is this happening? Is this happening? But no, um, just, I'm very lucky. I'm so grateful for yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, take it all in because like, I think it's pretty amazing and I know that's going to mean a lot to students at Western or just even people who came here before or didn't come or even just university students in general, like just people in that age group. Um, but yeah, do you have anything else like planned in terms of writing or even like short stories or novels or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, funny you say that. I was thinking of short stories. Yeah. Um, Trying, I think the world needs an escape. I know I need an escape. Mm-hmm. Um, memoir writing is incredibly draining, and um, it's 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 really hard. Like yeah. I think it, people misunder don't understand how it is the whole body experience. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to escape into something new. I'd like to try fiction mm-hmm. and try my hand at it. It's cool. been a long time since I wrote fiction. So um, that is my goal: short stories. Cool, cool. Definitely be looking out for that because that sounds really interesting. 
Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and answering all my questions. Um, this was so insightful and it was just so nice to hear you have your lovely thoughts on everything. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Eternity is going to also give a keynote on the campus community on February 22nd. Um, and on the same day, you're delivering a memoir writing workshop with Professor Jason Slander at the Critical Race theory class. Um, so if anyone's interested in joining that as well, you can message us and then we will put you in contact so you can talk to Eternity yourself and get to understand more about writing a memoir. But yeah, thank you so much for being here and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And um, yeah. Thank you so much, it was so nice to meet you. Yeah, so nice to meet you too. Thank you. Yeah, take care.